Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. You're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. Tonight we have a variety of stuff. First of all, an interview with Verity Watts from Better Songs, fantastic audio company that she formed herself recently doing masses of interesting work around the city. Interviewed here by young people from our Next Generation Foundation course. After that, an interview with Full Circle, a funeral directors in Harrogate, and Ben from Swansong. Fascinating collaboration, perhaps unique. After that, we have a weekly pandemical, a COVID diary from Jimmy Andrex, the first instalment of that. And after that, an interview with the poet Judith Wilson about her new poetry collection from Carcanet, and finally, a poem from Tim Brooks. That's Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. and I'm with Ellie, George, Gil and, and we're interviewing Verity Watts today. Hi, how are you feeling? I'm fine, thanks Erin. How are you? I'm great, thanks. So you you founded a company called Better Songs, so what exactly is it? Well, Better Songs is, is a production company um, and it's the company that I formed when I thought, actually, all of this kind of experience I've had making radio programmes and putting stories together and journalism and all of those things could come together and I I could create my own little company rather than working for somebody else so I, I kind of did that and I liked the name um, I don't know if you've done any research on this but it came from a film called Educating Rita which is quite an old film but still a good one that I'd recommend you all to watch. Well that, that, that was a sounds like a great website and uh, company what um because I saw the um on the about page on the on that on that website that um, you did uh, postgraduate training in broadcast journalism. And I just wanted, wanted to know what got you interested in, to, in, in that course. Also, has that interest um, in broadcasting been there since childhood? Well, not really, I would say, George. Um, I think, like a lot of people, I didn't really think that broadcast journalism or being on the radio was something that was available to me or a job that I could do. I didn't really have that in my head. You know, I think some people maybe from, you know, different backgrounds and stuff, maybe sort of think, oh yeah, I could be anything I want, but I didn't really think like that. I felt very limited perhaps by what I could be or what I could end up doing. Um, And it took me a bit of a while to get to uni. And once I got to uni, I sort of didn't really know what I was going to do at the end of it. And I was a little bit kind of I don't know, my mind was a bit closed. Um, so I, was, I remember this very particular bus journey I was on with my boyfriend at the time. It was in Leeds. Um, and um, I said, I just don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I've got to this point and I just felt a bit like giving up. And he said, well, if you could do anything in the world, like anything, I went, he said, what would you do? And I said, do you know what I'd really like to do is like, you know, that music on Match of the Day, I'd love to like edit all the songs together and put it together into a little montage and it'd be like a really cool thing. And he said, so you want to do kind of audio editing and radio? And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, I can't do stuff like that, so I can't. And he said, well, why can't you? I said, well, I don't know how to. And he said, well, go and find out then, which is probably the best piece of advice I've ever had in my life. And it led me to go to the, whatever it was, the careers office. And someone said, well, if you want to get into radio, you have to do this thing called a postgraduate diploma in broadcast journalism. I'd never even heard of that. I didn't even know what it was. So then they told me and I found out that, you know, you can do this course for a year and you can get a what they call a special loan for it. 
Um, and it's a great way of really giving you some practical ch training, which is what I wanted. I didn't want to do more essays and, you know, that sort of stuff. It was really practical and it often gave you a placement at a radio station. And that meant that you could kind of get to know everyone at the radio station, hopefully get a bit more work out of it. And that's exactly what happened. I managed to get a place in Preston. Um, and do my training and I learned about media law and all sorts of things that you really kind of it's good to know when you're becoming a journalist and I also got a lot of practical experience editing and learning how to put a story together and learning what's interesting and what works in audio and radio and then I got my placement at BBC Radio Leeds and worked really hard made a lot of cake for people that's my top tip make cake for people if you want to get a placement or get some work out of them um and yeah then I managed eventually after a quite a, a number of years I got a staff job at the BBC but um I certainly didn't think it was a path open to me and it was something that it really took someone who kind of believed in me or saw potential in me that I didn't see in myself and that was a really big turning point for me you see, now, being a bit older now, I look at life and I look at all of you and I look at all of the world and I think we can all achieve things. We've all got different abilities and skills, but we can all achieve the things that we want. But I think the difference sometimes is whether you believe you can or not and whether people tell you that you can or not. You know, we, we all have those situations where someone might be an adult, a teacher, it might be a friend, just say, oh, you can't do that. Or, or just say that, you know, you'd be good at this job. And you think, oh, well, maybe that's what I'm good at. Maybe I should be a, I don't know, a nanny or a teacher or those sorts of things. And they're perfectly, you know, fine jobs. But I think I just didn't even think that those were paths, paths that were open to me. Um, and I suppose I'm quite passionate now about saying to anybody who has dreams, you know, and, and wants to think big, that's that's not closed to you. The only thing that's closing off to you is your mind and being able to imagine it happening. Um, and, and it's just that thing of taking baby steps and thinking, well, if I did want that to happen, what would I need to do now? What would I need to do tomorrow? Uh, and in my case, it was, it was going to the library and, and asking someone about how you get a, a job in radio. It was just one little step. And that opened up all of this possibility and opportunity for me. So it, it was me that was limiting myself and not believing that I had the potential to achieve things. And that's, that's probably the most important lesson was believing a little bit more that things are open to me that I didn't think were. So before you mentioned that you began working for the BBC, so what was it like being a woman within the BBC? Oh, I like that question. Yeah, it's quite interesting. And I think even though, you know, I, I, I didn't, wasn't, it wasn't 100 years ago, but things were, were very different. And there were, certainly I felt there were challenges to sometimes being taken seriously. I remember having arguments. I wanted to go out and cover the Bradford riots and someone who was newer but male got sent instead because it was considered a, a better bet. And I was really, really cross about that. Um, I, I really wanted to read a news bulletin and um, I was told that my voice wasn't quite right and lots of kind of things that I took really, really personally and really struggled with. And I remember I remember crying in the toilets because you know what we're like. Sometimes we do tend to be quite emotional and respond that way. And it was crying with anger, but it was still crying. And um, I had an editor who came in the toilets and said, you, you must never cry at work and all of this. And it was, it was quite a difficult time um, in lots of ways, but I, and I had to kind of battle, I felt, to prove myself and be taken seriously a lot of the time um and I, I think also being younger that was quite um it's quite a big battle anyway when you're younger because you feel like people don't say you might find this as well people don't take you seriously when you're younger do they um so that was a yeah a really good question um and also now as a producer rather than something like a presenter or a sort of what we call a forward-facing role in radio um people don't they assume you're not very good at technical things if you're a woman they think that you might not be as good at editing or that kind of side of things or being able to operate equipment and things like that still to this day people kind of are more surprised if you're a technical person or want to be more behind the scenes in the production side so that's quite noticeable um and I think the final thing really is, is in journalism still you get people might assume that you don't know as much on certain topics or that you couldn't possibly be a, a expert or knowledgeable about areas that they might know more because you're just a woman um but I tend to like the element of surprise with things like that I and mean, take people uh, by oh I didn't know you knew about that and um yes often hopefully leave them kind of impressed that I do and maybe with a different idea about women at the end of those interviews or the end of that editing process so um 
yes, I think it's still a relevant question. And it's something that certainly was an issue, I think, through my career. Um, and it's something that hopefully you'll be able to challenge as much as I did at those times. Yeah, so um, you're obviously founded two companies, Better Songs and Bar Amu. So what actually goes into being the founder of a company? Because I, well, the truth of it, Seren, really, is I don't really like the idea of having a boss. <laughs> I don't, don't really respond well to being told what to do all the time. And I certainly don't really like the idea of kind of having a job that just creates profit and purpose for other people. I'm not really interested in money, but what I do really enjoy is that fulfillment of doing something you really care about and feeling like you maybe you're not changing the world in a big way, like you were president of America or anything, but you're making a difference. You're making an impact. You're having something that you can really see change or, or respond in a different way. And I feel the more control you have over the path that you choose, the more life gives you and the more you're able to create opportunities and the more you're able to um, respond to those opportunities. So, um, and also I, I kind of, have, I'm very, very hung up on being free and I like feeling free and um, I can decide how I want to structure the way I work or the business that I do or the things that I make or the products that I want to sell. And I love that freedom. Um, that's the thing that I care about the most. Um, and I can give that to the people who work with me as well um, and create an environment that means that they have a job that they really enjoy. Um, and I really like being able to give that as well. So yeah, I think freedom's probably the biggest answer to that question. On that note, what's it like to like, um like not have someone telling you what to do like you can be free with choices and like you can hire who you want when it's good it's really really good I mean the flip side is there's a lot of responsibility with that and you have to carry that responsibility and if you make a wrong decision or things just go wrong you have to carry that and figure that out and make that work and um, protect other people from the impact of that so that that can be a really difficult side of it um, but I really think I say I've got a, a little boy who's 10, so he's not quite old enough for that foundation yet, I don't think. But, um, you know, it always he's at primary school and they 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 talk about what job he's going to have. And I always correct. I said, Vinny, yes, you can have a job, but you can also have your own business. You don't have to have a job. And he's like, what do you mean you don't have to have a job? You know, and is it actually remember everybody and all of you have this option open to you. All it is a decision to be somebody a master of your own destiny or boss of your own business it doesn't have to be a big business but you can be in charge of your life and you don't have to work for somebody else and that's just a decision and yeah so I think there's some really great benefits to it and it definitely outweighs the, the negative side but you have to be prepared for the negative side and you have to be able to take responsibility for it and um often that can be it can be quite lonely sometimes because you have to carry those decisions on your own and you you can't you can't go to your workmate because your workmate is your employee and you're trying to protect them from a lot of things so sometimes that is difficult definitely but overall it's for me the best way to go Yes, yeah, so I also wanted to ask about because I also I looked on your website and I saw the Leeds jazz thing, and I wanted to know what made what made you want to create the the podcast series first, and uh, and what does that what does that mean to you? It's really really interesting. There's a new jazz scene that you might be interested in that's is cropping up around Leeds, and this theme of freedom kind kind of comes up to me with jazz. You know, a lot of people think jazz is just a bit of noise or a drum kit being thrown down the stairs and stuff like that, and a bit all a bit out there. But what I like about it is it's really free. You know, it's not like manufactured pop music where, um, you know, you're sort of told what to play or someone writes a song for you and you just record it and there's lots of control over it. Like jazz players are kind of, they, they push the boundaries. They go out there, they do things that you're like, that shouldn't work, but it sounds amazing. And I'd never have thought of doing that. And, you know, maybe rap's a bit like that. Maybe that's why you like rap, George, as well, that, you know, it's a bit freeform and people can express themselves really sort of directly and really honestly. And I, I think those same reasons is why I like jazz music. And 
it's also it's quite not well that well known outside of jazz that that Leeds is, has a really magical special relationship with jazz and there's been so many wonderful artists and gigs and stuff going on throughout kind of the last 50 60 years um and I really wanted to tell that story um and be able to share that with people and also you know as you go back to the 1950s a lot of these people are now dying and their stories haven't been recorded so I really wanted to capture that on audio and, and, and tell that story um before it was too late in lots of ways so yeah I've really enjoyed making that series and um yeah do keep an eye out for it and have a little an eye out maybe an ear out for it and have a little listen if you can uh, where do you think you'd be if you weren't like doing interviewing or radio or audio editing? I'm, I'm not sure. I think we're all in different places at different points in our lives. But I will say this. It's very easy to kind of come on here and tell you all the great things, isn't it? And say, oh, this wonderful thing. I'm put- I have made some serious bad, mis- you know, bad mistakes, bad turns, bad choices. Oh, I could, you know, I could do a whole nother half an hour on that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's entirely possible if I wasn't doing these things, I might not be really feeling like myself. I might feel a little bit lost. And there's been moments in my life where I've really tried to be someone else and it's not worked out that well for me. I had a period where um, about 15 years ago, my mum died from cancer and it obviously was a really big deal. And, um, I don't think I really realised the impact till afterwards, you know, quite a long time, a few years afterwards. But I think I then wanted to suddenly not be me anymore. And I kind of created this whole world where, I, you know, the people I was going out with and the, the world that I created was this sort of world of somebody else. And, you know, a few years down the line, I just looked at him and I'm really deeply unhappy. I, you know, everybody thinks I'm marvellous and I'm doing all these things and it's great, but it just wasn't me at all. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's following your heart and understanding what your your soul if you like is really calling you to do so if I wasn't doing this I'd probably be doing something else and I'd hope that it was something that really resonated with me and was really reflective of who I am in my heart what advice would you give to people who want to get into broadcasting like especially young people I think going really back to the what we discussed at the start which is don't ever think that you're not as good as the next person. Don't ever think that there's something different about you that means you can't be that person that you see that you want to be. Or you do not think that that other person has more opportunities given to them than you. Because very often that isn't the case. The only difference between you being the broadcaster that you want to be and the other person being it is you believing that that it's yours. And that combined with okay I want to be this don't don't think about wanting to be something five years down the line or two years down the line or even next month if you want to be something ask yourself what can I do today to be one tiny tiny minuscule step closer to to being that and then get up the next morning and go I did that yesterday and what can I do today to make myself a tiny inch a bit closer to the thing that I want to be so you're always doing something and you'll be amazed how that starts to open up a little world of opportunities because you're doing something. You're not thinking about being something in the dim and distant future. You're actually doing something. It might not go on the path that you think it's going to path. It might take you in a really weird direction. You're like, whoa, that's happened to me all the time. But go with it and be focused on it and believe that it's available to you. And I think very often you'll be surprised about how things unfold for you. Do you know, can I ask one question? I know we've got, I just, because I'm a, it's the journalist in me. What do, everyone was talking about broadcasting careers or jobs or whatever. What do you all want to be in a word at the moment? What do you, what do you want to be? I just want to be hopeful because there's so much like madness in the world right now and especially with all the news and the run unprecedented I know it's used a lot but unprecedented times like I just want to be hopeful and look towards the future I think maybe inspirational because it's great to inspire people around you to feel like what you're feeling and kind of your hope for the future and kind of yeah things like that I want to be a music producer and uh, because 
I just think um, when I think of all the jobs like lawyers and business, it just doesn't seem appealing to me. Like when I'm old, I don't want to do a job that I don't that I don't want to do every day. Uh, I'm not really sure what I want to do, but I know that I don't want to be those like working with people who are destroying the environment. Love the commas, love the apostrophes, love the colons and the question marks, love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, little, no, no, little, no, no, so good evening, you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. Now in the following interview we're going to be exploring a connection, a link between uh, a funeral directors, a local funeral directors and an arts project here in Leeds and a fascinating connection and we're going to be talking to two people, we're going to be talking to Ben Buddy Slack from Swan Song, hello Ben. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me. And we're talking to Sarah Jones from Full Circle Funerals. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Pete. So um, it's really nice to have you both here, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about this. Um, might be a kind of unique connection between arts projects and funeral rates. First of all, um, Sarah, tell us about Full Circle. Okay, so uh, we are a funeral director, um, and we support people from across uh, Yorkshire. So we would describe ourselves as a modern funeral director um, and when we're supporting people and when we're thinking about funeral care, we're doing that uh, with people's well-being in mind. So um, we approach funeral care from more of a health and social care perspective rather than, um, I suppose, uh, the more transactional way of, of viewing care so we are involved in lots of things other than just supporting families so research and trying to support people to have helpful and meaningful conversations about funerals either before they need them generally raising awareness but also at a time when people need to arrange funerals because someone's died i mean i'm going to ask a um a question it's probably an obvious question i mean are we, aren't most funeral directors kind of that don't all of them have the well-being of the family and so on at, at heart or what what makes you different in that respect yeah oh absolutely and I I, I mean I, I obviously can't speak for other funeral directors but I can't imagine that people would become funeral directors without that in mind I suppose what I mean by that is um, everyone in the team including me has a professional background in health and social care so I started my working life as a doctor um, and then worked uh, in social care, supporting adults with learning difficulties. So I've, I've become a funeral director, I guess, bringing all of that with me. So coming at things um, with all of those principles of, of how you support people and I guess coming at things with a more therapeutic perspective, which may not be any different to what others do. Um, and I, I certainly wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't wish to suggest that people aren't, but I guess it's just seems to be the easiest way to articulate what we're about so trying to bring everything um, that we know from how to support people how to be flexible in how we do that how to adapt the tone and style uh, understand that people have very different needs and come at funerals with very different levels of experience and expectation and um, and then try and make sure that how we're supporting people is very much based around what they need um, and trying to meet that need. It's the whole education angle is fascinating and the education of people around dying and death and, and funerals and how we mark those occasions, particularly at the moment, really, really important. And uh, I was talking to um, Ellie Harrison of the the Grief mm -hmm. series. I don't know if you... Yeah. yeah. I do, yes, I know her, yeah, she's yeah. fabulous. Absolutely, yeah. and I was interviewing her actually a few months ago. We were having a... I talk about this and how how difficult things are at the moment obviously and, um, but also I noticed on the website that 
but that that um, Full Circle is a female-led organization and that's that sounds quite interesting so just ex yeah that, I mean it probably doesn't need much explaining but perhaps <laughs> you know there was lots of controversy in the team about whether to whether to put that in yeah I mean it's so I mean there are lots of female funeral directors out there so I'm certainly not suggesting that 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 is unique um, but uh, for a lot of people um, it's important whether they're supported by um, a man or a woman um, so I guess we'd put it in there just to articulate that the majority of the team are female. Um, and, but I really would like to caveat that with um, that I don't think that the females are any better than the males at delivering funeral care. It's just that to some people it's important to have an understanding who they're going to meet when they phone, who might want to phone. And so that's why, it's, that's why it's in there, for information rather than <laughs> to suggest um, that it's better or worse. Well, we're going to come back to you in a minute, Sarah, and talk about the book, but then obviously the connection with, with Swan Song. So, Ben, tell us, for people who don't know, um, tell us a little about Swan Song, if you will. Yeah, of course, Pete. Um, so, the Swan Song Project is a charity that I set up in 2017, and the aim was to help people approach the end of their lives to write and record their own original songs. I um, I was inspired to do it after losing my grandma and I kind of regretted not recording my grandma singing with me. Um, and it's just taken off from there really. So I started it with at Marie Curie Hospice in Bradford and then we started working at St. Gemma's Hospice in Leeds and Wheatfields in Leeds. And then we've taken it online last year with the pandemic. So we're working with people all across the country now who are yeah, they're dealing with a terminal illness or are experiencing a bereavement. And yeah, we work with them to find something they want to write about, something that's meaningful to them make it sound the way they want it to sound and then record it and then it you know it lives on as a legacy for uh, for people in who are maybe passing themselves or as a nice way of remembering someone who has already passed and and so the connection here sarah uh between you and um swan song when did you first hear about swan song oh gosh a long time ago so i think the first time i met ben we were um both at some events which were about um Dying Matters Week, so trying to raise awareness about uh, and signpost people uh, for issues relating to bereavement and uh, and grief and support. So we met um, there, and then actually uh, we've sort of worked together in that um, Ben has supported people who wanted to uh, write a song with Ben uh, when they were um, knew that they had a life-limiting condition. And then we have also supported those same people to express their funeral wishes and go through the process of putting together what they wanted for their funeral. So we've um, we've sort of supported people, coincidentally really, supported people together. So that, I guess, gave me a real insight into how powerful that can be for people and how helpful it is. And um, yeah, so that's, that's, I guess, how I know Ben. And to come back to the education side, you've written a book called Funerals Your Way. And tell, tell us a bit about the book. So, um, yes, yes, yeah. so I wrote the book a few years ago now, and it was prompted actually by um, a lady I supported to arrange first her mum and then her dad's funerals. And she passed comment that she'd found the process of arranging the funeral really helpful, and she had taken everything that she'd learnt, and she had shared that with her friends. And then her friends had taken that learning and they had started to apply it to funerals that they were involved in. And she described it as ripples in a pond. And I thought, well, that, that sounds good. Um, and I had a little look around and I, and I couldn't find any really simple self-help guides. So I thought, well, all, all I need to do really is, is put together in a really simple way, a decision-making framework with some suggestions for people um and um yeah so it, it's it can help people who want to make their own wishes known so it sort of talks them through the process and they can kind of write down what they want it also helps uh if people want to talk to someone close to them about their funeral wishes but they maybe don't quite know where to start so give some suggestions on on more specific questions that they might ask but it also works if suddenly someone finds themselves faced with having to arrange a funeral and they just feel Quite bewildered by the whole thing and it's a really short read and the idea is you can flick through it won't take too long and you would then feel like you kind of know the basics of what you need to know um, 
about funerals and about the choices that you might like to make. Sounds really interesting. And I, I do, uh, I'd very much like you to, uh, a bit later on, to tell us how we can get hold of the book. But you've, you've made the decision to donate the proceeds from the sales of the book this year to Swan Song. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I've, I've, every year I've, I've chosen a different charity to donate the proceeds to. Um, which are not huge, I did say from Ben at the start. This is not a, you know, it's an Amazon bestseller, but in a tiny little category. <laughs> so, uh, but I wanted to, um, so all of the charities that I've chosen have been bereavement related or supporting people with, with something uh, to do with death, dying and, and bereavement. And um, I really wanted it to be a local charity. Um, and I know Ben's reach is growing and growing, but you know ultimately he's from Leeds and Yorkshire, and, and that's where he's based. And like I said, I've had real first-hand experience now, and heard from more and more families about the really positive impact um, of their their time with Swan Song and what they've managed to create. And it's also just really unique. I don't know anyone else who is supporting people in the way that Ben and Swansong are to write their own songs either for themselves or to start talking about their bereavement and support them with that and ultimately it's it's about um, supporting well-being and everything that we do has that in mind so it felt like a perfect alignment so I asked Ben and thankfully he was happy to accept the proceeds um, so here we are so Ben yes this must be a good thing for you I mean you must be very pleased about this yeah, we're thrilled. Really, we're really grateful to Sarah for um, for the support. You know, we're still a very small charity at Swan Song, and um, yeah, yeah, all all the funds we managed to raise are, are crucial. You know, as a small organisation, and um, it's always hard as well. You know, dividing your time. Um, so things like this, you know, the more things where people are supporting us in different ways, um, it you know takes a bit of the pressure off us to be fundraising all the time and allows us more time to to work with people on the songs, which is what's really important to us. So, yeah, we're very uh, appreciative of Sarah's support. Well, um, in a minute we're going to hear a, a song that uh, Swan Song have created over the last few weeks. But first of all, um, Sarah, could you tell us how um, people can get in touch with you at Full Circle and also can get hold of the book? Sure. So, um, at Full Circle, so we have a website, which is just fullcirclefunerals.co.uk and all of our contact details are on there and we're on the other places that people might look so facebook and twitter and instagram and these sorts of places and the book is available on amazon or as an ebook on kindle and it's also on audible um but if you uh yeah so it's available in all those places if you just search for funerals your way and it's the full name is um funerals your way a person-centered approach to planning a funeral by yourself sarah jones Sorry, yes. <laughs> and Ben, if you could tell people, uh, how, tell us about where people, how people can contact you at Swansong. Uh, yeah, so our website is swansongproject.co.uk. You should be able to find everything you need to know on there. If uh, yourself or anyone listening, uh, anyone you know listening, might be interested in doing a song with us, there's information on there. Uh, you can contact us through the website and we're uh, always happy to help. Uh, you can also find us on all the social media channels, uh, Sarah said, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and all those places. Um, we have a podcast as well, so you can get us on all the podcast sites, which uh, an episode featured Mr. Pete Spafford himself not long, recent, not long ago. <laughs> so your listeners can check that out as well if they'd like to. Um, yeah. Great. Thanks, Ben. And thanks for the plug. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so, Ben, tell us about the track that, uh, that uh, we're going to hear now. Yeah, so this was a song that we finished just before Christmas. Uh, I got an email through the website from um, this young woman, Charlotte Newell, uh, and she said that her dad had passed away in October um, and she'd been recommended the Swan Song Project as a nice way of, of doing something to help with her, with her grief. Um, and she told me that her dad used to have a tradition that at Christmas every year, her and her sisters and uh, would like have a new a new skill or something new to present at Christmas, and this obviously being the first year without him, she thought it'd be nice to have this song about him to present at Christmas. And this was maybe at the start of December. She got in touch with me, uh, and I said like, I said yeah, we're very happy to help you, and I can't I can't promise we'll get it done by Christmas, but we'll we'll do our best. And uh, we had our first session, and the song just yeah, we got a lot done, and then we both 
I spent a bit of time working on it afterwards. She spent a lot of time. She sent me, you know, she'd done a lot of work in between our sessions. So we got the song done really quickly. Um, and it's just great. It's a song about a dad. Um, and yeah, so then she played it for her family on Christmas Day, uh, which I thought was just a, a really sweet story. And it's a really sweet song. And she sang it herself as well. With Swan Song, we always give people the option of, you know, one of our team will sing it if they don't want to, but if they would like to sing it, we'll kind of coach them through it. And Charlotte sang this herself, and she did a great job. And I spoke to her recently and said that she's just really enjoying singing it with her. You know, it's like a dad's there with her when she sings this song in his memory. It's called um, Dear Eddie Newell. Thanks both for joining us this afternoon. Thank, Thank you. you, Pete. Jimmy Andrex. Number one, a Tuesday. It's hard in different ways getting through these days. On a day that looks like it's sweating off a cold, the teacher at a makeshift desk feels old. The anxious, learning disabled young man cries in a chair with his head in his hands. The old soldier who managed to dodge Nazi bullets finds peace when forced to surrender to Covid. And what if the storm becomes the norm? And out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. 
Do we tear each other apart online or volunteer information and time? The village Facebook group shares information about roads and vaccines until an altercation kicks off when some man-child starts taking the mick and then the pylon starts. The insults stick like slush to your shoes and out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. On it goes while the anxious learning disabled young man finds shelter in the pleasure of a cigar bought as a present in guilty love by tobacco-hating parents. Any port in this squall reads the message in the smoke when we're in the same storm but in different boats. It's hard for everyone in different ways finding a path through these days. On a day when an hairdresser styles herself a martyr on social media misquoting Magna Carta, the comments coalesce like the parted snow sulking in the gutter of bronze side roads. Everyone's an expert in the wrong sort of numbers. The argument's predictable as a Channel 5 drama. The teacher learns she's not been outside for two days and suddenly dreams of pork pies. It's hard for everyone in different ways, thinking through these Covid days. Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. So you're listening to Love the Words on East Leeds FM and I'm talking to the poet Judith Wilson about her new collection Fleet. Hello Judith. Hello, it's great to be with you Peter. Lovely to have you with us too. Now you've had um, your first collection with Carcanet and this is also with Carcanet. Um, so the first collection Crossing the Mirror Line that came out what three years ago was it? Uh, yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. And this this collection is is tell us about the premise of it. It's a fascinating historical story, which uh, we, I'd love to know more about. Tell us, tell us how how what the starting point for the for your for your writing was. Um, well, this book really started in quite a, an unusual way for me, actually. Um, I'm not really a sort of family history person. I'm not one of these people who, you know, spends a lot of time digging out material and, you know, compiling family trees and things. But somebody in my family did become interested in family history and she was sending me all sorts of bits and pieces. And then um, those, you know, they were quite interesting, but I wasn't writing about them. And then suddenly there was this story that came my way that my grandmother's grandmother this is the late 19th century she was a woman called Eliza and she lived in London um, and she married a, a man who was a migrant he'd come to London from a, another country um, and he called himself a dealer in foreign birds and curiosities and he had a shop selling um, those things near the docks and I was I was immediately interested in this, the idea that somebody who was foreign um, was, in a sense, setting himself up to to make the exotic a commodity to sell that. Um, he was sort of promoting it as, as, you know, a seller of himself, as a seller of foreign th things and birds and, and um, the, the other things he was selling. Uh, they were really, you know, commodities of empire. They were part of what was being 
plundered really, not bought across the empire and sold. It was part of the whole wealth of Britain at the time. And that was very, very interesting to me. But there was more to this story than that because the next thing that came my way was that Eliza had um, served a prison sentence. She'd gone to court accused of abandoning two of her children. They were very young children, um, toddlers really. And um, she denied this. She said she'd left the children with her husband, but she was sent to prison. And the person who was doing this research couldn't find anything else about the children. They simply disappear from the world. Uh, they were sent to the workhouse, but after that, there is nothing. Their, their story just ends. And again, I found this really very haunting. I mean, it's, it's haunting simply as a story, but um, the fact that nothing would have been known about this woman. Um, she was illiterate. She wasn't wealthy. She had no part in sort of big history with a capital H at all, except that she apparently commits a crime and immediately her life sort of collides with power structures. Um, she's in court and that is reported in a newspaper. It has to be said, this wasn't a, a kind of front page scandal by any means. Um, there were a whole column of reports of magistrates' courts, and this was about an inch in that. It, it, wasn't, a, um, it wasn't even that unusual as a crime, you know, and there were um, just endless reports of people who weren't paying their rent or had stolen something. It was at that kind of level. Um, and what became very important to me about this story really was the fact that so much in it wasn't knowable. Um, there were a few things, there were a few moments when these people sort of step out and become visible, but most of it was completely lost. Somebody wasn't telling the truth and we'll never know. Um, people have disappeared. Um, it's full of holes and evasions and things that have been lost and that really is what interested me about it. This is about Eliza. At night she listens to grass parakeets in their cages, a room full of rain sluicing across sleep in all the colours of panic. He tells her how the Lydia set sail from Brisbane, so crammed with gaudy, shrieking birds that two weeks out, sailors turned mutinous, like a ship full of women, flung two or three hundred loose, a swarm of rosellas, turquoisines, rainbow lorikeets reeling out into the dazzle. She knows the crew must have looked back only once, silent. Every morning he lays out trays of finches and sunbirds, counts them into his death book. I really didn't want to write a kind of verse novel. Um, and there are things that novels can do much better than poems and I can't do those things. I, I didn't want to get bogged down in um, sort of trying to invent things. I didn't want to get bogged down in a sort of costume drama, really, and, and having to, you know, find out what sort of people would have been eating and things like that. Um, I wanted to really play fast and loose with this story and to be able to move around in time because... For me, it had a lot of resonance. Um, it wasn't just a kind of costume drama. I mean, the whole aspect of it, of this man who came from somewhere else, um, had a very powerful resonance for me. I, I um, spent a lot of time thinking about this idea that he had these birds, these foreign birds, um, locked in their cages in his shop. He was going to sell them. And he himself didn't belong in this place. 
um, he had another, he'd grown up in another language and another culture. Um, and that, of course, is very much something of now. I didn't want to just write this as a kind of Victorian thing. Um, and I really wanted to explore um, the way in which we reinvent stories, the way in which we remake them and retell them. So one of the voices that I use in it is a kind of fairy tale way of writing because it does have a bit of an aspect of a fairy tale, this idea of the, the abandoned children. Um, the bird seller seemed to me quite a, a sort of very enigmatic kind of figure. And that fairy tale idea became a way of writing without being too sort of tied down to the literal aspects of the story. Mm. Um, of sort of widening it out and opening it up a bit. Obviously, a bit of research has gone into this. In, unless you know the names of these tropical birds and uh, and the sounds <laughs> they make. I read more books, um, more Victorian books, about keeping tropical birds than any sensible person would. Um, but um, it's... It, it fed into it. I mean, I had to sort of climb out of that rabbit hole. I, I read quite a lot of historical material, um, but uh, I, I had to then get away from it. But one thing it did was it gave me a language. Um, I mean, one of the things that interested me was how a lot of these books about keeping birds like parrots um, were written in a very gendered language they were written in a, a language of of power of possession which wasn't just kind of imperial power it was gendered power um the birds would be spoken of as or written about as being um flirtatious or good nest builders or sulky um if they didn't learn to talk because people wanted to teach parrots to talk you know and um, if they didn't learn to talk well they were sort of stubborn and idle um, so there was language like that. And in this poem, The Bird Dealer's Wife, I, w I was really thinking about um, that sort of, well, I was thinking about several things, but one of the things is that kind of gendered idea of um, the birds um, being uh, these beautiful creatures um, and, and the the caging of them, um, the fact that they couldn't thrive once they were brought here. I mean, the, the death rate was huge because people don't, didn't know how to feed them and look after them. And I was, you know, thinking about his wife lying there, unable to sleep, listening to these birds. Um, and the the line about the sailors turning mutinous and, and saying it's like a ship full of women, that I did take from one of the books. That was a, an account of how the, the sailors just, they couldn't stand this sort of shrieking noise of the birds and they just flung them overboard. Mm, fascinating. Judith, let's have another poem from the collection. Okay. Um, this next poem, which actually follows in the book as it happens, um, it's called The London Cage, which was the name of a kind of cage that you could buy. Um, and this bird dealer also made cages for his birds. Um, and here I was really thinking about him coming to this country and um, how something in him was locked up, was inaccessible. Um, so there was some loss in what he'd, he'd come here and he'd shut off something in his past, perhaps. So this is the London Cage. The workmanships in the securing of wires, the exactness of fastenings. Tiny red spiders will hide in loose joints. Nothing more distressing to the cage maker than a badly wired cage. A London cage, well made, now that's a business-like article. One or two compartments, a small nursery secluded from the living quarters by a door, an independent tenement, plain as possible, a well-ordered system, a cage pleasing to find in a working man's home as a cheerful wife, a clean hearth, 
and an eight-day clock, and no weak points in the mesh that could be disclosed by a slant of blue air between rooftops, early morning, a sudden smell of bread, a boy running barefoot without a sound, the neighbour who looks up from stamping turf over a hole he has dug the size of a barrel without a sound, and without a sound shouts news of one army or another. I was thinking in the poem that that ending, there's often when people have had to leave their own country, there is a, a sort of suppressed memory. There is something there. It's usually to do with one army or another um, that forces people to leave and travel from one country to another one. Judith, thanks ever so much for, for talking to us about fleet. Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. Finally tonight on Love the Words, a poem from Tim Brooks, a poet I recently encountered at uh, an open mic event, Words Club. This is a poem called Kintsugi. Immediately I heard it, I thought I'd really like this on Love the Words, and Tim obliged me by recording himself reading it. Kintsugi. After one year, seven months, three weeks, four days, you cautiously step through the door. For months I had come to your house to sit at the top of your stairs, drinking tea while you avoided conversation, duvet wrapped behind your door. Found common ground in Tankdale, Cobain, Tim Burton, the work of Jamie Hewlett. I fetched you looking for Alaska. You reached through the door, arm replete with the pink lines of the nature drug. They illustrated your story. You left me book reviews, cartoons, beautifully crafted, witty, insightful. Sometimes a painful investment. You talked about a life of dysfunction, how your brain searched for quiet, why you wouldn't leave the house. Anxiety rode you. The day I saw you for the first time, no running for cover, fidgeting at your kitchen table, old cardi, vans and PJs, broken glasses, bitten nails, your mum hovering nervous. An edgy, febrile light shone in you, anxious for urgent mending. You wrote me pages of quirky prose. We talked about D.H., Sylvia, Emily and her sisters. You started to eat, but continued to med with sharp things. We played your restlessness, your fretful history. Sketchbooks burst, talent carefully etched. Still darkness held you. I came to see you in hospital. Grey winter, your 16th birthday. You didn't want any more shit days. Paracetamol and fluxetine ready to oblige. We sat in silence. Then you asked... Is it too late to do my exams? Your life is a display of difficult golden repairs. Kintsugi. <laughs>